Good morning. I wanted to, uh, our, our, the main question that we want to talk about this morning is going to be, what is the one thing that God wants you to focus on this year? What is the one thing that God wants you to focus on this year? Of all the things that you could be doing this year, what is the one thing that God wants you to do? Of all the things that you're going to end up doing this year, what is the one thing that God wants you to focus on doing? Um, this is going to be different for everybody because of the fact that God has given you certain things that are maybe on your heart. These may be something that you have done in the past, something that you have tried to do in the future, but for whatever reason, it was just something you couldn't go forward with. And if you were to be honest with yourself, this is something that you've kind of sensed that God is telling do and you've sort of ignored it. It's sort of on the back of your mind. You kind of put it off to the side, but you just know down deep inside that this year, this is something that you should really be focusing on, that this is something that is really important. Perhaps one of the things that you are having to deal with is something like this. Maybe it's a goal that you have need to accomplish in your life, something that you started to go forward with, but whatever happened the kids got busy, the, you were in school or work or whatever it was, there was this one goal that you just really sensed that God wanted you to accomplish, but you just never did get to it. And so it was something that you kind of put on the back burner. Maybe it was a habit that you need to break, that this is a, something that you've been dealing with for a long time and God has kind of been softly touching you about this. And he says, this is the time, this is the day, this is when you need to really start taking this seriously. Perhaps it's a project that you started, but you never did finish. It doesn't really have to be anything that's super spiritual. It's just something that God has told you that this is something that's important. This is something that you need to do. This is something that is important to me that I want you to go forward with. Perhaps it's a relationship that you need to mend. Maybe it's a conversation that you need to have with somebody that the, something happened in the past and you guys are crossways with one another. And the Lord's been telling them you really need to give him or you really need to give her a call. Or maybe it's a relationship that you need to end. Sometimes those are necessary. Sometimes there's relationships that you just need to walk away from and you know it, you know it's not a good relationship. You know that you shouldn't re-answer answer back when they text or whenever they call. You just know it's a relationship that God has been telling you you need to stop this relationship. It needs to end. Perhaps it's a degree that you need to finish. Perhaps it was something you started, you got to going and you either ran out of money or somebody got pregnant or somebody got hurt or something like that. And you just, on the back of your mind, you know that that is something that God wants you to do and you just can't seem to get any traction on what that is. Perhaps it's a ministry that the Lord has been wanting you to start. Something he's wanted you to, to do. Just something on the back of your mind and you can't shake it, you can't get away from it. Perhaps it is a debt that you need to retire. You know, that this has always been hanging over you and you just, every month you have to go and you have to make that payment and you just know that if you were to tighten down and to really start focusing on it, if you were to invest some money here or stop eating out or do all these other things, you just know that there's this debt that's just hanging over you that is just like a albatross around your neck that God is saying, I want you to get deal with this, deal with this. Maybe that's what you're looking for. The other question that you should consider about any of these things, however, is what blessings will such a focus bring? If you were to focus on that, think of the blessing that this would bring into your life. Perhaps it would be a blessing to your health. If you were to maybe quit this habit or maybe start this habit, maybe it would be a blessing to your family. If you were to focus on this one thing, just think of what it would look like 12 months from today. This is the end of 2023. Whatever that thing is that's in your life, and if you were to focus on it for 12 months and you were to really take it seriously and you were to really engage with it the way God wants you to engage with it, just think about what type of benefit and blessing this would be to your family or to your health or maybe to your career. You just know you need to get certified. You know you need to go and you need to do that extra training in order to get to that level there. Just think about what it would look like if you were to invest the next 12 months in focusing on that one thing that God wants you to do. Think of the blessing it would be to your finances if you could do that, or maybe even to your relationship with God. And because all of us tend to lose focus, there's a third question that we have to kind of ask is, is what practice, in, while we're in this process of, of, of pursuing what God has for us, what practice strengthens our resolve to stay in focus? 
I mean, all of us at some point or another get started well, but then something will happen and we sort of lose the sort of emotional capital we had at the beginning. We can't really explain it. I was really gung-ho about this, but something happened. Something intervened and slowly but surely began to chip away at your resolve. So what is it that we could do that would help strengthen the resolve that you and I should have whenever we're focused on something that God wants us to focus on? So for the next few minutes, I want to share with you from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, a fascinating account of how one of God's people found the secret sauce, as it were, to overcoming the, uh, the challenge that we all face in staying in focus. And so uh, please turn in your Bibles to book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter one, chapter one. And uh, we are going to begin with verse one. Uh, feel free in your own version whether it be digital or paper or otherwise, to follow along. And if you don't have a Bible presently, you can just go ahead and look up at the screen. We will try to have that there. Nehemiah chapter 1. So, the words of Nehemiah, son of Havilah, during the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa. So, this... uh, this, these opening verses give us a little bit of clue of what's going on here. Hananiah, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. And so Nehemiah was a Jewish man that served as a high official in the upper echelons of the Medo-Persian Empire. And we find out later that he was a cupbearer, but we will come back to that in a few minutes. But let's look at the geographical context of this first verse. You can see the map up there. So you can see Susa is on the far right, and that's over in the Medo-Persian Empire. And then you have Babylon, which is where the Israelites were first taken into captivity. And then, of course, you have Jerusalem. And Israel was in exile because of the fact that they had entered into covenant disloyalty with Yahweh, with God, and that he had sent them into captivity in 586 BC through the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were... uh, taken over by the uh, Medo-Persians. And this is the time frame in which we are looking at. And Hanani had traveled to Jerusalem and he was there working with some other people. And it tells us in verse three that what the news that Hananiah brings to Jerusalem. But especially notice how uh, Nehemiah responds to the news that he gets. And so picking up in verse three, they said to me, the remnant, In the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. You can see that there. Verse four, and when I heard these words, notice how Nehemiah Nehemiah responds to this. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. And one of the things that I want us to see here is that the reason that Nehemiah was so impacted was because he, at some point during this conversation, and he, at some point, whenever these Jewish brothers came and started to describe for them the conditions of what was going on in Jerusalem, is that he adopted God's distaste for the status quo. Israel had been unbelieving to God. And that was the whole reason that they were in captivity to begin with was because they were disloyal to God. And you can tell that God hates, you know, what our failure to act does. And this is exactly what happened with Nehemiah. He recognized that the reason that the the Jews were in this position was because of the fact that they had not um, been faithful to God. The walls were torn down and the people that were living there had been there for over a hundred years. They had went back. God had given them a little bit of a respite under Cyrus and he was, they were able to come back under Zerubbabel. If you go back one book, you get to the book of Ezra and that kind of explains that going on there. But what had happened is that most of the people that lived in Israel during this period of time had not ever not lived there without the walls being torn down. And this was ugly. And so God hates it whenever you and I do not have the same view of the situation that he does. And this is what happened with Nehemiah is that he adopted God's view of the problem in Israel and it broke his heart. 
What would, what would it look like if whatever the thing is that you have that you know that God wants you to do, what would it look like if you were to adopt God's view of that? If you knew that God hates it because of the sin or because of the problem, perhaps that one thing is if by you not acting, acting on what God wants you to do, just think about the impact it's having to your family by you not acting, by you, by you not doing what God wants you to do. Think about the impact it's having to your finances if you do not act and do not respond to what God wants you to do. A lot of the times we do not have the same heart towards the things God wants us to do. We don't share the sense of urgency that God has with it. And so in order for us to get to the point to where we're really going to be obedient to God and that we're really going to follow through with what he wants to do, he wants us to share the same view he has about it. He wants you to understand the impact of you is going to have on your finances, on your family, what's it's going to happen to your career, what is the impact it's going to be to your health if you don't respond to this, if you don't listen to the doctor, he says you need to start eating better, you need to start taking your medicine, he says you need to start getting up and moving more. What is it if what would it look like if you and I decided that we were going to share the same attitude that God has towards whatever it is he wants you to do that he himself has? That can make a big difference, can it? Think of the impact to your ministry. Think about the impact to your relationship with God. The reason God wants you to do this is because he knows that your inactivity has impacts in all of these areas. It may be relationally, it may be financially, it may be to your ministry, it may be even to your relationship with God. And once Nehemiah realized this, he broke down before God. Look at Nehemiah chapter one, verse five. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned a number of days. Fasting and prayers, verse four. And I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open to your, and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Notice what he says here. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances that you gave your servant, Moses. So you can see here that, by, that Nehemiah broke down before God. He broke down. He had recognized the Lord's faithfulness all these years in spite of them not responding correctly, in spite of them getting themselves into that. He confessed his own contribution to the problem. His breakdown allowed Nehemiah to see with clarity for the first time the problem. Nehemiah made no more excuses about that. He confessed his contribution to the problem. In, in order for you and I to get traction in whatever it is that God wants us to go forward with, is number one is we have to have God's view of the issue. We have to see the problem, see the situation, see the impact of it from God's view. And then secondly, what we have to do is we have to acknowledge and take responsibility for our contribution to the problem. And that's what he does. He, he, he lays out before God, he recognized that the reason that they were in this situation was because of choices that they had made that this was sin. And so he confessed not only his sin, he says, look, you see it in there, I confess my sin, but I also confess the sin of my family. And that's what's gonna have to happen with you if you're ever gonna make any traction in that area. If it's a habit or something or something like that, you're gonna have to quit making excuses on why you continue to engage in that habit. Until you quit blaming other people for the reason you're in this situation. Perhaps it's some kind of issue financially that you're in problem with. And a lot of times the financial things that come our ways is not our problem, not our fault, but oftentimes it is. And so for, to whatever degree we are responsible for the situation that we're in, we have to take responsibility for that. Amen? The moment we no longer are responsible, then we become a victim. And so to the degree in which you are responsible for the situation that you're in, you need to confess it, get it out, make it clear. You don't wanna be in bondage to the fact of you being a victim. You're not a victim. Most of the time, the situations that we're in is a result of either somebody else's sin, which you can do nothing about, or the sin of yourself. Or it may not even be a sin, it might be just be an oversight or some other area. But at some point, before you make any real traction going forward, you're gonna to have to take responsibility for your contribution to the problem. And I just love how Nehemiah does that. You will never 
continue on when you make excuses. You're never going to make any progress. So confession here was not enough. Uh, look in verse 11, and we can see that he seized the opportunities that God's provision made. So verse, uh, I need to do something real quick. <laughs> I need to take out one of my contacts. That was kind of gross, wasn't it? Okay, so I couldn't read my Bible. I couldn't read anything there. So, all right, so we are in verse uh, 11. So notice here that he gets to the end of the, uh, he gets down, he gets to the end of this prayer and Nehemiah uh, says in verse 11, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. So Nehemiah knew that he had to do something. Uh, he knew he had to act. He knew that he had to put trust in God's open doors. And that's what he did here is he put trust in God's open doors. Um, he seized the opportunity that God had for him. And that's going to be true for you and I as well. Um, we oftentimes do not allow God's providence to work in our lives. We pray, we confess, but then are we looking for God to act in a certain way that's going to bring, um, you know, success? When we pray for it, are we acting that, are we asking that God will help us with that? So, uh, what did he, so that's what he was wanting to do. I got kind of lost there when I lost my contact here. Just a second. So, okay. So they are the servants of your people. So he comes to this point where he really needs to uh, take the opportunities that God has given him. And so that's what, I that's what I want to talk about here is oftentimes whenever you and I pray and we recognize that there's something God to do, we need to get up and we need to go and we need to expect God to answer that prayer. We need to start answer that prayer. Think about how badly you are wanting to do what God wants you to do. And oftentimes we'll get up from prayer, but then we don't recognize how God is orchestrating things in our life in order for these things to take place. And so Nehemiah, he gets up, he wipes his tears off and he goes back to work. And it's within the context of him just going back to his daily life that God provides an opportunity for him to be able to fulfill what God wants him to do. It was just normal day life. It wasn't a miracle. It was just one day he, he's a, he's a cup bearer and he's in front of the king. And it tells us in verse um, 11, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to my prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. And at that time, I was the king's cup bearer. So he was a king's cup bearer. So he was really more than that. For you to be the king's cupbearer, you had to have a great deal of trust with the king. It wasn't like he just tasted wine. He organized everything that had to do with what came in front of the king. Oftentimes, it was not only wine, but anything. And he organized all the people from the source. You know, we talk about uh, being green sourcing of our materials. Well, he was responsible for making sure that even the vineyards that the wine came from was under certain standards. And they, he traced the the transport of that, those grapes and turning into the wine. He supervised that entire thing. And then he organized the entire household of the king to ensure that the king was not compromised because the way we kind of get rid of people in office that we don't like, we just vote them out. Well, then they would just poison them. And so this was a big problem for kings of this day. And so the cupbearer was not just somebody who was responsible for a lot of of just logistical things, but he was somebody that the king trusted a lot. But yet we can see that, that we also need to seize the opportunities that he had. And we can see that change is not easy because of the fear that he had in the next verse. We're looking at Nehemiah 2. So during the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Xerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king and I had never been sad in his presence. And so the king said to me, why do you look so sad? You know, if I was, if I was eating and I my wine barrier didn't look right, I would be real reluctant to take a swallow of the wine, wouldn't you? He says, 
He goes, uh, he says, why is it that you look so sad when you aren't sick? This has nothing to do but sadness of heart. And so he looks at the king and he says, what is, and so I was overwhelmed with fear. And that's what I want to see. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when in the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So notice that in spite of the fear, Nehemiah pushed forward here. And instead of shrinking back in fear, Nehemiah allowed his fear and his uncertainty to fuel his prayers. And it's the same thing with us. You know, he's going up in front of this king. This king could take his life and he was going to be asking for a big ask here. He goes and he asks him for this and God is working behind the scenes and he's done what you and I have done a million times where we're going to go and ask something or do something and we throw up one of those Hail Mary prayers. And we can see that the fear of an uncertainty of him having to go forward and do what God wants him to do, it was something that was encased in fear. Yet he did not allow that to stop him. He actually took that fear and he used the fear and the uncertainty of the future to fuel his prayers. You know, perhaps you're going to have to move. If a decision you make to obey God may require that you sell your house, or maybe it requires that you sell one of your cars, or perhaps it requires that you end a relationship and you're scared of lonely. You don't want to be lonely, but you know that this is something God wants to do. Almost every time God puts that situation, there is an element of fear involved, but don't shrink back in fear and don't go back to the status. What God wants us to do is he wants us to use that fear to fuel prayer, to come before God. And you can see he was fearful and he was throwing that prayer up before God. And he did not allow the uncertainty or the fear to fuel his prayers in verse two, two. We're going to go to the next slide. So we want to turn our fear into our turn our fear into prayer, and that's not the time to quit. Instead, it's the time to pray. So notice what happens in verse six. The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked him, "How long will your journey take, and when will you return?" So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the Lord to send me. And so you can see that the king answered his prayer. The king answered his prayer and God had favor and he had leaned into his fears with prayer. He had committed himself to allow God's providence to go forward and to um, open the doors for him. But then you'll notice is that whenever the king said yes, is that you can see that he had prepared himself for the uh, opposition that was in front of him. Look what it says in verse 7. He says, if, if it also, he also said to the king, if it, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And so you can tell that he had thought through the type of obstacles that he was going to have, right? Uh, he knew that there was going to be problems facing him. And the same thing is with you, whatever the, it is that God wants you to take care of this year, you're going to have obstacles. And oftentimes, you know what those obstacles are. Oftentimes, those are the very obstacles that had put you back before when you had tried the first time. And so Nehemiah, in order for him to go forward and to do what calls, called him to do, is that he had to anticipate the types of, of problems that he was going to have in your life. Sometimes it may be, um, you know, you need to not go by that person's cubicle when you're at work because you know that you're going to get dragged into a conversation that you don't want. You know, sometimes you may think that you are, uh, you know, going to, you know, you're going to have to go somewhere where you spend money, or maybe it's an, uh, you know, there's a person that you don't, you can't talk to, or maybe there's people that you can't hang around, or maybe there's a certain environment that you can't go to because of the fact that you anticipate that the problems are going to be there. Perhaps financially speaking, you need to maybe tear up the credit card. Or maybe uh, relationally, again, you know better than to text message because you're going to drag right back into that situation. So each one of you know what the problems are. You know, each one of you know what the obstacles are to you achieving what God wants you to do. And I just love how Nehemiah did as well. And he planned. He made, he made the ability to plan for these things foremost. And so he says 
in verse, uh, so we're on verse seven through 10. If it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah and let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's force, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. And the king granted my request because the Lord's gracious hand was on me. And so Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Nehemiah knew that uh, that he had decided to start on this wall and that he was going to need certain types of materials. And so he, on the way to Jerusalem, there were going to be all these enemies. There were going to be all of these really warlords that existed in between Medo-Persia and Jerusalem. And so he had asked for permission for him to be able to go through those types of areas unaccosted, that he would be able to have the supplies that he needs. And then when he got there, he was going to be able to have the funds and the materials in order to go forward with the wall building. So he prepares for all of that. And notice that that in verse 7 through 10, that after he decided to start on the wall, he got busy. Let's look at that. So as he's going through there, he gets to the wall in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. And he, once he decided that he was going to go to the wall, he got very busy getting to work. And it was really difficult for him at first because of the, what was happening. He started working well, but then all of a sudden, Sambalet and Tobias, which were these warlords who were going to present problems to him, they were an antagonistic. Now, these were Ammonites and a Moabite. Um, we believe that Sambalet was a Moabite, and we believe that uh, Tobias was an Ammonite. And we know that these were people who were related to the Jewish people, but that they were really antagonistic towards them, is that they had stepped out of favor with God over the years because of the way that they responded to Israel. And so they were an obstacle to him. But whenever he gets to um, um, Jerusalem and he goes and he begins to look at the scale of the damage. And like I said, the people that had lived there were in a terrible mess. It was what they called disgrace because of the fact that there was just debris everywhere. They had, Zerubbabel had come, he had set up the, um, the temple, but then they had this delay in the building. And a lot of the people got corrupt. They, instead of them continuing to work on the temple and continuing to work on the city, they began to um, make deals with a lot of these warlords that existed in Israel during this time, including Sambalot and Tobias and the other people. And so there was a lot of corruption that Nehemiah had to face that goes along the way. And so he does finally say, we need to rebuild the wall. He gets busy rebuilding the wall and they, they do have some success. He begins to assign people certain areas of the wall that they could focus on. And so they, this family would focus on this section, this family would focus on this section and they would continue to build and they were making progress, but Sam Ballot didn't care. He was oftentimes, he would start off by just criticizing them. He would just say, can you believe these Jews are actually trying to come back and restore their previous glory. Can you believe this? And so that's going to happen to you as well is oftentimes whenever you start off on a new journey, when you start into a new initiative, when you start to go in a different direction, you are going to have people in your life who is going to come around and they're going to criticize you. They're going to make fun of you. They're not going to agree with you. Oftentimes they have uh, interests that are in opposition to you. Sometimes they might even be a member of your family. You know that the impact that you're going to make in your family is going to, the impact that you you make is going to affect your family in some way. And so oftentimes you may even find that there's going to be opposition from even people that you love, unfortunately. Uh, you're gonna, the devil especially doesn't want you to make the changes in your life. He doesn't want you to make the changes in your life to your health or to your finances. He doesn't want you to make the changes in the, your life to the relationships. And so there's always going to be these, these different types of obstacles that are going to come your way. And Nehemiah was prepared for a lot of these obstacles. And he made progress. Sam, Sam Ballot criticized. And then he realized that, that he needed to do more than just criticize Nehemiah. And so one day he decided that once the walls got up to the point to where there were no more gaps in it, they were just starting to go up. There were no gaps. The only thing they needed to do was to put in the gates is that he knew that he was going to have to quit um, 
somebody who was soft with Nehemiah, and he decided to get to Nehemiah directly. He knew he was going to have to get Nehemiah out of the city. That was the only way he was going to stop him. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, we can see the plan that he has here. Six, chapter 6, verse 1. So uh, look, at, look at how it happens. So when Samballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there was no gap left in it, Though at the time I had not installed the doors in the city gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. And they were planning to harm me. And so he knew that he was going to have to cause Nehemiah to get out of the city. And so he basically says, Nehemiah, slow down what you're doing there. I just want to talk to you. Let's have lunch. Let's have dinner. I just, we, we need to talk. Some things have come up and can you come down? Can you come down out of here? And, and, and we'll talk about it and we will get it worked out. But let's not do it in Jerusalem. Let's do it out way down here in the northwestern part of, this, of the Ono Valley. And we can meet there and we can talk about this. And so Nehemiah looks at this and he gives him an answer. And in this answer is the is, is a, a verse that once I came across this verse and I heard it preached to me for the very first time, it just got all over me. And I just could not let go of it. It affected everything I did. It, it affected everything that I look at. It affected everything that I tried to do. Uh, and it was something that I think that it, a practice that you and I can look at that will really help us to go forward with this. So look in verse three, it says, and so... I sent messengers back to them saying, now it says in the previous verse that they were planning to harm me. It doesn't appear that Nehemiah knew that they were planning to harm him at the time, right? This is something he's writing the story. He didn't know that they were planning to harm him at the time. What he saw was this might've been an opportunity. And so he says, so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing an important work and I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? They sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. And it's like, what is it that he did that was so different? Did you see what he says there in verse three? He says, I am doing an important work. Some of your translations say a great work. What he did is that he saw that what he was doing is that he he, he embraced that as God for his life. He says, I am doing a great work. I am not going to come down. What would it look like every time an opportunity came your way for you to get off track, either financially or whatever, and you considered the consequences of you getting off track, and that's something that you said. I am doing a great work. I'm doing God's work, and I am not going to come down. Or what about the time you are in some kind of relational struggle and you just want to get out. You don't want to continue on in this relationship. And it's one that you should. Maybe it's with your spouse. And it's just very difficult day in and day out, day in and day out. And you just have tried, you've prayed, you've counseled, and you've done all these things. But you just don't really see any way out. What would it look like if you were to take the mindset to recognizing that what you're going through is God's mission for your life, that that is the one thing that he wants you to persevere in, and that you can take the attitude that you are doing a great work and that you're not going to come down. You're not going to come down from this. You're not going to stop. You're not going to get distracted through these opportunities that come your way. Isn't that what gets us off track? Oftentimes the so-called opportunities and they get us off track and pretty soon we're gone. Well, not only was Nehemiah not going to fall for this opportunity that he was given, but he also knew that it was going to be, um, you know, despite the opportunity, but also too is despite the rumors. Look what he says. So Samballat sent me the same message a fifth time by his aide, and he had an open letter in his hand, and in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem agrees. Let's see here. Yeah, I'm going to do this. Samballat sent me the same message a fifth time, and he had an open letter in his hand, and in it was written, it is reported among the nation, and Geshem agrees, that you and the Jews plan to rebel this is the reason you are building the wall. 
Now, an open letter in this day meant that it was open for everybody to see. Typically, whenever somebody wanted to send somebody else a letter, what they would do is roll it up very tightly, and then they would put a seal on it, and then they would stamp it with whoever the sender's initials were or whatever his seal was. And what that ensured was is that whatever message that was going to go to the person was sealed. It was not something that was read about. But Nehemiah noticed that the letter that he was sent was an open letter. It was one that was not sealed. And so you can tell that the intention of Sambalat in this was to create a rumor about Nehemiah. His goal was to really allow it to be known, to allow this rumor to sort of get out that the reason that he is going to be building this wall and the reason he's wanting to build up Jerusalem was not because of anything that was noble for God, but was because he wanted to be the king. So think about that in your life. I mean, some of the challenges that you face, you know, you get opportunities in your life and you say, I am not going to come down. I am doing a great work. I'm doing a great work in my marriage. I'm doing a great work in my finances. I'm doing a great work in my ministry. I'm not going to come down. I'm doing a great work in my career. I'm doing a great work in my education. I've started this degree and I am going forward and I don't care what happens. I am going to continue on in this great work because this is for God. This is what God has called me to do during the season. And I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to allow these opportunities come my way. That's going to get me off track. And he says, I'm also not going to allow rumors to get me off track. Some people are going to judge you for the decision that you make. Some people are not going to understand what you're doing. Some people are going to mischaracterize what you're doing and why you're doing it. They're going to slander you in front of others because of the fact that you've made this decision to follow God. This is really difficult for young people because young people tend to have a sense of, of um, high view of, of status before other friends. And so other people's, our peers oftentimes have an influence in the decisions that we make because we have such a strong desire to fit in. And it's not just young people. Some old people have that as well. But sometimes those fears in order to fit in will cause us to cave because we just don't want people to think bad about me or that we don't want people to think that I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. And you kind of talk yourself out of doing it in many ways. So despite the opportunities and despite the rumors that are going to be passed along you, you need to don't come down. You're doing a great work. Continue with doing it. And this is what he had to do in order for this wall to be built. He had to be able to overcome these obstacles that were his way. So it wasn't just opportunities that he was facing. It wasn't just the fact that there was these slanders that was coming along. It was also the threats that he had to face. Look what he said. So after he responded to them about, and this is how he responded. Let's go there. Verse eight first. Then I replied to them, there is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. He goes, look, there's nothing about this. That's, that is uh, true. You're inventing this. You're just trying to keep me from continuing the work. You can see how much progress I'm making. You can see that the walls are going up. You are just trying to slow me down. There is nothing to these rumors. And it's great that Nehemiah had this ability to kind of see through the actions here. He said, for they are all trying to intimidate us. He saw it for what it was. They will drop their hands from the work and it will never be finished. But now my God, strengthen my hand. So there it is again. He calls out to God in prayer. Me, Lord, to go forward, to do what I want to do. And then the next thing is, verse 10, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel. Obviously, we don't know who those guys were, but they knew who they were whenever he was writing this. These were people that they could identify with. And he said that let's meet at the house of God. So he has this person who wants to get him to shrink back from what he's doing out of fear and the threats that's coming. He says, let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Now, the problem with it, you know, going into the temple is, there's really nothing wrong with that. But the problem is, is that for some people, it was prohibited for certain people to go into the temple. You had to be a priest, a high priest to go in certain areas of it. And so what this person is asking him to do is to violate God's law by going into this. And then so Nehemiah addresses it. He says, let's shut the temple doors because they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. And so there's these threats of him coming in there. But I said, look what Nehemiah said in verse 11. Should a man like me run away? You know, what kind of message is this going to send? How can someone like me enter the temple and live? How can I do that? Right? He knew that it was prohibited for 
to the law and to the temple. And so he knew that when somebody asked him to do that was something that was against God's will and against his, his law, his explicit law, he knew that it was not true. And he said, I will not grow. I realized that God had not sent him because of the prophecy he spoke against me. He knew that the very fact that this person said, let's go into the temple was a lie because God would never ask Nehemiah to do that. And so he discerned that there as well. And so he says, and he was hired so that I would be intimidated, do as he suggested, sin and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. And he says, my God, please remember Tobiah and Sambalat for what they have done and also the prophetess Noadiah and the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. So we can see that regardless of the opportunities that Nehemiah had, regardless of the threats that were made, the accusations that was made against his character, and in spite of the threats that were made against his life, is that he was still able to say, I am not coming down. I am not going to give up the great work that God is doing. He adopted a mission mindset about what God wanted to do. What would it look like for you if you were to adopt a mission mindset about that one thing God wants you to do this year? What would it look like? If it's important and if it's God, what God wants you to do, then it is a mission. Why not adopt the mission mindset to go along with it? Pray to God, ask for him to give you a burden for whatever it is he wants you to do. Allow, ask him to allow you to see the consequences of what inaction is going to do. Allow him to work in your life and the circumstances in your life. Be looking for the providential actions and the providential things God's going to be doing. Because if he wants you to do it, don't you think he's going to open up the avenue for you to do it? He's going to provide that gym membership that you want. He's going to provide that ride that you need. He's going to provide you with the extra help that you need in order to perhaps, you know, get away from having a sedentary life. Perhaps he's going to help provide you with the, with the um, tuition to go back to school. He can open up doors for that. I remember in the early part of my years, I didn't pay a dime for early part of my schooling year just because the Lord brought money in. And it was just one of those things. It was just such an answer to prayer. And then we had people that, that gave donations as well for that. God, once we set our minds to doing what God calls, wants us to do, he opens up opportunities and opens doors. And we can't allow fear to get in the way of that. We can't allow fear and the uncertainty of the future to get in the way of what God wants us to do. He wants us to take that fear. He wants us to take that uncertainty and he wants us to pour that into prayer before him. Take that all that energy and give it to him. He knows how you feel anyway. He knows the fears. He knows what it's going to cost you to obey him. So why not take a mission mindset of whatever it is? Some of you may, some of you might drink too much. And the reason you know that they're true is because somebody told you you drink too much. And you know, you know why they're right is because they thought long and hard before they even wanted to talk to you about how much you drink. They didn't want to talk to you at all. And finally, it got to the point where it was so uncomfortable for everybody. They had to tell you, you drink too much. Some of you know that you just drink too much. Perhaps you have a, 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 an addiction to prescription drugs. And you know it's just something. You kind of have it under control. And you can kind of function on it sometimes. But there are times in which you just kind of, on the back of your mind, you know the Lord is speaking to you about that. This is something I want you to deal with. I want you to get rid of this this year. I want you to look at it the way I lo look at it. I want you to have... Uh, the sense of urgency that I have about that. I want you to hate it the way I do. So whatever it is, you know, it could be a financial thing. You may have to make a, a you know, some of you need to re-enroll in school. Some of you need to go back and get that degree. You've made excuses for it long enough. Enough time has gone by. And you know that God has been telling you for some time that you need more training, that you need more education, that he, he's got this for you. And you've just sort of ignored it. You've looked at all the circumstances that's come into your life and you've sort of reinterpreted them to kind of fit the more comfortable level. But you know that you need to get that certification. You know you need to get that education. What would that look like? Some of you know that you need to pick up the phone and call that person. You say, well, I don't really want to. I really haven't forgiven this person yet. God knows all that. Why don't you come to him and ask him to give you his heart regarding that matter? Why don't you call him and ask him to show the impact of your unforgiveness, what, what it's doing to you, allow him to reveal that to your heart and life. 
allow him to show you what your unforgiveness is doing to your family and to your ministry and to your education and to all these other areas. Allow him to see what it's doing in your own heart. What is your one thing that God is saying, this is what I want you to deal with this year? What is this one thing? So in your outline, it says, the one thing God wants me to focus on this year is. Now, I think most of you know what that is once you write it in there. What is the one thing? God? I, there's a lot of things. Now, for me, some of you are overachievers. You got two or three things on this list that you want to deal with. But what is the one thing that you have to do this year? That 12 months from now, if you get to the end of the year and you come back and the commitment that you make today, that one thing, what would your life look like? What I want you to say in B is, what is the spiritual blessing this focus will bring? The spiritual blessing this focus will bring is what? What about the financial blessing that this focus is going to bring in your life? What about the relational blessing? Write it down, put it there so that you have it with you. Carry it in your pocket so that whenever things get bad, whenever you start having fears and uncertainty and you sort of lose your sense of resolve as you pull this thing out and you remember, this is what I did. This is the, this is the decision. This was the blessing. This is what God told me to do. And this is the blessing that I am expecting to have as a result of that. What kind of blessings are going to have in your ministry? What kind of blessings is going to have in your career for you to take this seriously? And then finally in C is what's the opposition you're going to face? What opposition are you going to face? Because of your decision to do that one thing. Do you know what those things are? I think you do. You might know one or two of them. A lot of times it's just fear and uncertainty. That, kid, that stops a lot of us, amen? Is fear and uncertainty. But oftentimes, you know, it's people. There's certain situations. You know, you don't know how your spouse is going to react. You don't know if they're going to have their support there. You know, some of you are dealing with your kids you're, who have left the faith, and you as a parent know that you should have that conversation. You should pick up the phone and at least ask, why have you rejected Jesus? What is the reason? You don't even know why they've rejected reason. And God has said, why don't you kind of open the door there where you're afraid to run them away, you're afraid to make them avoid you. You don't want to hound them about their decision to walk away from the faith. But as a parent, you know that the Lord's been telling you, why don't you just ease into that? Maybe there's a neighbor that the Lord's been wanting you to share your faith with. You know, this one person, every time, you know, there's opportunities you had and you just sort of said, nah, they're getting away. Okay. They're probably saved. Oh, this person, they have a cross around their neck. So they probably know Jesus. So I'm not going to share Christ with them. I know that happens to me as well as I see these opportunities to share Christ. I mean, he is the savior of the world. He died on the cross to pay the penalty that I and you deserve. He lived a life, a good and perfect life that nobody else could live. He lived that life. And then he was put on a cross and he, as God died on the cross and God took all of the sins of the entire world, your sin, my sin, everything that you and I have done wrong. God took that and he placed it on Jesus Christ because he is both God. And because he was both man, he was able to number one, withstand the gravity of the world's sin in his person. So he could suffer for the sin in a way in which you and I could never do it because he was God. But he also too was man. So that qualified him that his death would be payment for your sin. He lived a perfect life because he knew you couldn't. And he took all of your sin upon him and he died. But because he was God, and because of the fact that that entire process giving victory over death, he rose from the grave on three days and he showed himself to multiple people during multiple times over multiple days. At one time, Bible tells us, Paul, that it was over 500 people at one time. And he says that the way that you can come and have a relationship with God is by trusting in what he did for you, placing your trust in it. You don't have to say anything. You don't even have to come down here and pray. What you do is you listen to that message of his love toward you and you are trusting in him and you are going to believe in him for that promise because he promises you everlasting life. He promises you that you're going to live here. You're going to have a normal life, but he's going to be involved in your life. 
He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to allow you to experience his peace and his joy as you follow him. And as you submit your life to him, you're going to experience the joy. And you're going to find that there are certain sins in your life that you no longer like and that you're uncomfortable with. And it's not a rule-based thing. It's a relational thing. It's not that you're violating a rule anymore. It's you're violating a person and he just creates a sense of distaste for sin in your life. And as you follow him, it becomes stronger and it becomes easier. And some of the battles that you face in life oftentimes are just put to the side as a result of his empowering spirit in your life. He's going to make sure you have challenges. He's going to make sure you have problems. He's going to make sure that life is not perfect because of the fact this world's not perfect. And because of the fact is that you must trust in him to get through it. But one day, he promises that you will be resurrected and that you're going to be free from these bodies of decay. You're going to be free from these bodies that do not want to walk along with God. You're going to be free from these bodies that are constantly, even by gravity sometimes, amen, pulling you down. One day, you're going to have a new body and you're going to be with him. And this body, you're not going to have these temptations and these struggles in your heart and life. But until then, he wants you to love him and trust him and allow him to work in your life. Some of you have not been baptized. You've believed in Jesus Christ, but you've obeyed the very first thing he says to do, and that is to be baptized. That means it's to tell everybody, I am now a Christian, and this is a mark in my life in which I am going to walk with God. I am going to, I am dead to my sin, and I am raising a new life. And the Lord wants you to do that publicly. You do that in front of your family and friends. Some of you have not been baptized. I would encourage you to speak with us. We'd love to baptize you. We'll find water somewhere. I think we have a pool here. But what is the one thing in your life that God wants you to focus on. What is the one thing? 12 months from now, what would your life look like if you focused on that one thing? What would it look like? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace, your kindness, and your love for us. We thank you, Father, for the example that we have in Nehemiah of being able to walk um, in this path of, of finding the one thing, Lord, that you had for him to do. And Lord, what great example he the way he approached you and the way he depended on you in prayer and the way that he mustered up the courage because of he knew that you were with him and he adopted a mission mindset about the issue of his life. Lord, I pray that you would help us, help us, Lord, to adopt a mission mindset about that one thing, whatever it is. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to walk in your grace, I pray, Lord, that you would help those who are here who are struggling or, and they have issues and they know what that one thing is and they just can't imagine even beginning to try it, to even beginning to put it into practice. They want to continue just to ignore your, your, your conviction about it. Lord, I just pray that you would not allow them to be settled there. I pray, Lord, that you would graciously in the way that you do, that you would bring them to a point to where they get to the end of their rope. I just pray for that. In your grace, Lord, is joy. And in your, in your life, Lord, is, is the only life that we need. We just thank you for that. Lord, we pray for our church. We pray, God, for the people that are here. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.